Thank you, Brother Craig, and for choir, the beautiful number. I would like to invite you to open your Bible to Ecclesiastes 7, the passage that we read. I am Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to welcome you here today. I'm glad that you have joined us to worship the Lord. I shared last weekend, Becky and I love getting up on Sundays knowing that it is Sabbath and we work extra hard on Saturday getting things done so on Sunday we can practice that Hebrew word Shabbat, cease. <laughs> we like ceasing on Sunday. We love worshiping, fellowshipping, gathering, singing, hearing God's word and there's nothing like it on the planet. Ecclesiastes 7, this morning, as we continue in our study in Ecclesiastes, we're going to talk about wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. Every day on our planet, every human being faces the same question, which is this, will I trust God's wisdom in what I'm facing today, whatever it is, or am I going to rely on my own wisdom? In Genesis 3... The ancient serpent slithered up to the very first couple and whispered in their ear not to trust God's wisdom, not to trust. And the consequences, as you may know, were disastrous. And that ancient serpent, the devil, is still doing the very same thing today. He comes up to us, or as demons, and whispers in our ear, you can't trust God's word. God isn't good. You can't trust his wisdom. You can't trust his ways. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Eat a little dove chocolate. Open it up and says, celebrate yourself. <laughs> Gospel according to dove. A number of years ago, I met with a professing Christian. I don't know she was genuinely born again, but she was a professing Christian in our church in Michigan. And she wanted to become engaged to a non-Christian. And she came in asking me about it, and I spent time going to the Scriptures and explaining to her from Scripture that a believer, a true believer in Jesus, is only to marry a true believer in Jesus. That is very clear in God's Word. And finally, as we were talking... She looked at me and she said, I know what I'm doing is out of God's will, getting engaged and going ahead with this marriage. She said, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. That is following the wisdom of the world. This morning as we come to this chapter, we're beginning the second half of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 to 12. And one of the most prominent themes in this last half of Ecclesiastes is wisdom. In fact, the words wise or wisdom in Hebrew, which this was written in, are used over 30 times in these last six chapters. So it's a very prominent theme as we walk through this. All of it is reinforcing Solomon's theme of the whole book, which is this. We will never find reconciliation with God. We will never find lasting satisfaction under the sun until we trust in and fear the God above the sun. That's his overarching theme. That's his meta theme. 
We will never find reconciliation with God. We will never find satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in this life under the sun until we are reconciled with the God above the sun and accepting his wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 7, as this new section on wisdom begins, he's showing us two things about wisdom, and we're going to drill down into each of them this morning. This is, this is really important stuff. And as we've noted, Solomon is especially targeting young people. So if you're here and you're under 79, if you're above that, you're middle-aged. But if you're under 79, he's targeting you. He's saying, pay attention, young people. So let us hear what he has to say. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to give us several examples of godly wisdom so we can see what he's talking about. I love the Bible because it's so practical. And here he gets very practical. Now a couple just let me step back, give a couple uh, kind of overview re- reminders. We've learned in Ecclesiastes that it's included in what we would call wisdom literature of, of, the, of the Bible. That's a genre of literature that includes, at a minimum, Old Testament scholars put in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes into that category. Sometimes Psalms and Song of Solomon is also added. Wisdom literature was a very common form of literature in the ancient Middle East and also in Israel. And here was, here's the focus of wisdom literature. It was a, and you'll, you'll get a feel for it as we go through this, but it has a, it has a certain feel to it. The, the, the design of wisdom literature is choosing wisely in life. That's the point of wisdom literature. The wisdom of the world is learn and is live and learn. You know, live, make mistakes, try to learn from them. The point of wisdom literature is, no, first learn, then live. You can avoid life-altering mistakes if you will pay attention to what God is saying. So wisdom literature wants to show us how our daily choices have massive consequences. Sometimes it lasts a lifetime. Consequences for ourselves. Consequences for our family, our marriage, our children. Consequences for our culture. Consequences for our eternity. What's interesting is that you trace wisdom literature and the theme of wisdom throughout the Bible. Wisdom literature in the Bible ultimately points to Jesus, who was the very embodiment of wisdom. The Old Testament wisdom books, especially Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, throw in their Psalms, Song of Solomon, point to Jesus and have all these different pointers to Messiah, coming Savior, a Messiah who will be the wisdom of God in human flesh. So we come to a verse like Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This brings us to chapter 7. As we've noticed, this is a chapter focused on wisdom versus folly. The key word in chapter 7 is this, better, B-E-T-T-E-R. It's used over 10 times in this chapter. And Solomon begins in these first 11 verses, that's our first section, examples of godly wisdom, verses 1 to 11, by giving us examples of godly wisdom. This is really practical. So I hope you're tracking in because this is immensely helpful stuff as we walk through life. And again, notice how often he's using the word better. So he's going to give us several examples. I'm going to drill in on about four of them. Number one, First example of godly wisdom, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, is better than laughter. Verses 1 through 4. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than fine perfume. The day of death is better than the day of birth. 
it is better, you can already see the repetition of the word better, to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. That's all of us here today. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Interesting. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. So while Solomon tells us in his book in Proverbs, chapter 17, that laughter is good medicine for the soul, here he's telling us that mourning can actually be better for us. Now, sorrow can plunge somebody into despair and bitterness, but according to Solomon here, it can also lead to spiritual joy and renewal. And this is why he's reminding us that the day of our death and reflecting on it is actually better than just going along with nonstop pleasure. The Puritans, writing three, three or four hundred years ago, did something that modern evangelical preachers don't do a lot. They constantly challenge their people to think about death, not to become morbid or morose, but, number one, death span, the lifespans were a lot shorter, so death came earlier, but also to remind people that this is not the end of all things. There is an afterlife, and we should be thinking about it and making sure we're right with God. Matthew Henry, one of those Puritans, who has a, probably one of the most famous Bible commentaries out in history, in, in, at least in English, it will do well for us and better for us to go to a funeral than to a festival. Ever thought that? Better to go to a funeral than a festival. I know that preaching at a wedding and preaching at a funeral has a complete different feel to it. When I preach at a wedding, number one, all the guys are glazed out in the audience because they would rather be doing just about anything rather than being there. The women are all clued in, but it, it, it's a completely different feel. When you're preaching at a funeral, especially if it's a, what I would call an unexpected kind of funeral, a younger mom, a child, somebody who committed suicide, I've done several funerals for suicides. You have everyone's immediate attention because everyone is fixated on mortality for a few moments. There's, there's something very, very healthy about that issue. Spurgeon said, death is nearer than we think. Let us then talk about preparing to die. Reminds us of a verse like Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days so that what? We may gain a heart of Wisdom. So the most important question right now this morning, young people, kids, ladies and gentlemen, the most important question facing you as an individual, are you ready to meet God? It's a question that's not asked in a lot of churches. Are you prepared to meet God? Have you been reconciled to God? Are you born again? Do you know Christ as Lord? Jesus said in John 3 something very important. He says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have been born again, gone through a spiritual rebirth process. And the Bible says that takes place as a person repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all in. It's not just that they go to church or they've been baptized. You can do all that and go to hell. But you are all in with Christ. You have surrendered to Him as Lord. So that's the first thing. Mourning is better than laughter. And that's why. Second example of wisdom, verses 5 to 6, rebuke is better than praise. It is better, verse 5, to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. 
like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless, or that's our Hebrew word if you've been with us, hevel. This is just smoke and mirrors. King Solomon compares the praise of fools to the burning of, uh, of thorns in a campfire. In other words, what? In other words, you hear a lot of noise, but there's no lasting good. You don't get any fuel out of it. If, you, if we allow a wise person to rebuke us and we listen to it, it has far more lasting impact than if we listen to fools. In fact, again, wisdom literature showing us the two consequences go in opposite directions. By the way, as you look at uh, verse uh, 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, Solomon is using a play on words in Hebrew. Again, this was written in Hebrew. This is now Hebrew poetry. Most of the first part of Ecclesiastes has been prose. We now get into Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme words so much. It rhymes thoughts. And it either can be contrasting parallelism or it can be synonymous parallelism. In other words, you're either rhyming thoughts or you're contrasting thoughts. We're now entering section of Hebrew poetry here. And in this, these two verses, he's actually using a play on words, which is also not uncommon in Hebrew. For, so, for example, just to let you know, song, the word song is the Hebrew word shear. The word pot is the word seer. And the word thorns is the word sirim. And this is very common in Hebrew. It does not come through in English very well. But there's a lot of play on words in the Hebrew text like that. Thirdly, patience is better than anger. Verses 8 and 9. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. Hear this. For anger resides in the lap of fools. When the Bible talks about fools, by the way, it's not talking about intellect. Not talking about intellect. It's talking about your response to what God has said. Those that spurn what God has said are a fool biblically. They may be a brilliant physicist. They may be a brilliant Nobel laureate, but that's not the point. The point is they don't welcome what God has said. That makes them ergo a fool. That makes them a fool. So, patience is better than anger. Fourth example, verse 10. Today is better than yesterday. Today is better than yesterday. Some of you are probably saying, amen. (laughs) But this point is what he's doing yesterday on what is past. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Questions. When life is difficult and we're impatient for change, it's so easy to look back at the good old days, right? The good old days. It's been said by some old hag, wag, hag, wag, whatever, that the good old days are a combination of bad memory and an active imagination. <laughs> because we always tend to immortalize the good old days. And some of it was good, but it's not always quite easily as good as it looks in the rearview mirror. Solomon is telling us yesterday is past and it can't be changed. Some of us need to own that this morning. Part of God's grace when someone comes to faith in Christ is, yes, there is a memory of what went on in the past, but also letting it go and moving forward in hope and in grace and what God's going to do. And tomorrow may not even come. So Solomon's point, the point of the Bible is make the most of today Carpe diem, seize the day and live in the present. 
That's where the bulk of our focus should be. Today is better than yesterday. Tomorrow is not promised. We have today. So here are just a few examples of biblical wisdom. Proverbs is full of this. We know that. The book of Proverbs is full of practical wisdom. But you get Proverbs in other sections of the Bible. And here in Ecclesiastes, you have several of those Proverbs. So mourning is better than laughter. Rebuke is better than praise. Patience is better than anger. And today is better than yesterday. This takes us to the second section of this chapter, which is verses 12. And it really goes right up through chapter 8, verse 1. Remember, chapters were added about a thousand years after the text was written. Some cases even longer than that. So really, the section divides here, I think, at 8.1. But the benefits now of godly wisdom. So we're going to go from examples of godly wisdom. What are the benefits of it? All of us, again, face every day the question, am I going to listen to what God has said when it comes to my finances, my relationships, my sex life, my career, my leisure time, my worship, my weekends? Or am I going to honor myself and follow my own wisdom? And again, those take us in two totally different directions. So the benefits of godly wisdom, and he's going to give us several of them. Number one, in verse 12, wisdom is a shelter. Wisdom is a shelter. Verse 12, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it or who possess it. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Wisdom protects. It protects us from making life-altering mistakes that can damage and destroy and have consequences that last a lifetime. Sometimes we say, but I, I, I don't want to be where I'm at. But we go back and look at choices we made. And sometimes some of those choices, although they can be forgiven, they cannot alter the consequences. Don't ever confuse forgiven sin with the consequences of sin. They're not exactly the same thing. In fact, sometimes they're very different. All sin can be forgiven, but consequences can alter our lives. And we can see that with a number of biblical characters. Yes, they can be forgiven. God does wipe the slate clean. But it doesn't mean the consequences all disappear. And there's a lot of confusion on that in our Western culture in general, but also in the evangelical church. So wisdom is a shelter. This next one I'm going to spend a little bit longer time on because it is such a real issue for so many of us, and it is this. Wisdom helps us accept and rest in God's providence, verses 13 and 14. So I'm going to read verses 13 and 14, and then I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this because I believe this point right here is going to be of some of the most helpful material this morning here. Wisdom helps us accept and rest in God's providence, verses 13 and 14. Consider what God has done. So what we're about to read, we're being reminded God is doing this. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? That's an interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. When times are good, be happy, meaning God has given that to us. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. So everything in 13 and 14, we're being told, has its origin in God. Whether 
he has made something crooked, we'll come to that, or whether he's given us good times or bad times, it all goes back to God. Now, verse 13, consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When Solomon refers to God making something crooked, he's not talking about God has done something morally wrong or morally evil. Instead, what he's talking about is when God has appointed difficulties, when God has appointed affliction, when God has appointed a trial in our life, And God sovereignly assigns that trial, that affliction to one of his elect, one of his own. That we're to consider that because it is God who assigned that for divine purposes. You say like what? Holiness, maturity, growth, joy, perseverance, hope. You may may say, well, I don't feel like that's producing those things in my life. But that's the design when God assigns affliction, when he assigns adversity, when he assigns trials in the life of his elect. Daily trials and difficulties. You say, like what? Financial loss. The loss of a loved one. Family conflict. John Piper has a section in his newer large book on Providence on providence, on God's providence over difficult family relationships. It is, it is gold. If you don't read the whole big red book, I would encourage you to do that, but if you don't, that section is of immense help practically. Difficulties and trials, again, like financial loss, family conflict, health problems, emotional struggles, emotional pain, depression, loss. You could fill in the blank there. God is the one who makes things crooked. He's the one who uncrooks them. (laughs) And the question is, are we going to see that and rest in his providence or fight it? And again, the consequences of that decision will take you in two totally different directions. Let me give you one of my favorite examples from history. Back in the 1700s, there was a great Scottish preacher named Thomas Boston. And Thomas Boston lost eventually six of his ten children in infancy. So these are children that had been born, lived anywhere from a few months to a few years, and then he lost them. And this is not uncommon in his day. The great Puritan John Owen lost all 11 of his children after birth. Only one reached adulthood. She died. His wife died. He outlived all ten of his children and his wife. Thomas Boston lost six of his ten children. After losing one of their sons named Ebenezer, they named him Ebenezer, he turned to Ecclesiastes 7.13 to this exact verse, the Scottish preacher, and found comfort in the fact that he realized it was God who had taken Ebenezer. Now, he and his wife Catherine had a decision. They had another baby boy following Ebenezer. And Ebenezer, by the way, is a name that means the Lord has helped us. And so they tried to decide what are they going to do with their next child and their next son in particular. Are they going to rename that next son or not the same name? They decided they were going to do that. That's not uncommon back then, to rename the next child if it was the same gender, the same name as maybe one that had been lost. But they were hesitant because they thought, well, if, if we lose the next baby boy and the name means God has helped us How are we going to adjust to that? So he was born, and they did name him Ebenezer. He was very sickly from the time he was born, and he died shortly thereafter. And so they lost two baby boys 
named Ebenezer. Boston wrote this in his memoirs. Now think of what our response might be to God at this point. It pleased the Lord that he, meaning the second son named Ebenezer, was also removed from me. It pleased the Lord. So many today would turn to anger and to blame. Instead, Boston turned the other direction and he acted on godly wisdom, leaned into God's providence to rest in it. And it was Ecclesiastes 7.13, the verse that made the difference for him. Eventually, he published a sermon based on that verse called The Crook and the Lot. The Crook and the Lot. And eventually it became a book after he died. I just finished reading it. And at one point in the book, he says this. This is worth gold this morning. If you would be... Now remember, he's writing this after losing these two boys. And I don't know how many children he had lost by this point. But at least he had lost his two sons named Ebenezer. If you would be quieted and satisfied in your affliction, lift up your eyes to heaven... So if you want to be quieted and satisfied in your affliction, lift up your eyes to heaven and see God in it. The moving of His hand. Look at it and it will be. Remember that God is the cause of the crook in your lot. In other words, He is the one who has assigned the affliction to you. In fact, the subtitle of the book that was eventually published after He died was this. The subtitle of The Crook and the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. So, if you would be quieted and satisfied in your affliction, whatever that affliction is here today, a lot of us here are going through heavy things. So, fill in the blank. If you want to, be, if you want to find rest and satisfaction in that affliction, lift your eyes to heaven, see God in it, the moving of his hand, look at that and remember it. And remember it is God that is the cause of that affliction, that crook in your lot. Behold how it is the work of God, his doing. His doing. A little bit later he offers three pieces of advice to anyone suffering. In the book he goes through all different kinds of afflictions. And he goes through different kinds of responses shown in scripture. But he gives us these three pieces of advice to anybody going through deep water. And that's a lot of us this morning. Pray, pour out your heart to God. Humble yourself before God. Quit blaming everyone else. Quit blaming anybody else except yourself. And thirdly, wait patiently on the Lord. That's the part that we really have a hard time on. Wait patiently on God. It may seem like forever until the answer comes in your time frame, but not in his. The crook in the lot. Wisdom gives us the strength to rest and wait in God's providence. Third one, wisdom protects or wisdom produces joy. Produce, I'm sorry, wisdom produces strength. So wisdom is a shelter, verse 12. Wisdom helps us accept and rest in God's providence, verses 13 and 14. Thirdly, wisdom produces strength. This is the third benefit. Verse 19. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. 
Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. That's interesting. So wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. So the Bible says this, when we conduct our lives according to God's wisdom, whatever happens, there's going to be a strength, a confidence, a joy, and a stability that comes to us that will not to those who are responding otherwise. Fourth benefit of wisdom. Wisdom teaches us about the dangers of sexual sin. Verses 25 through 26. 25 to 26. So I turned my mind to understand and investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. This is speaking in wisdom literature. Often sexual sin and the lure of it is personified in the form of a woman who is seducing. It could easily be a man. Doesn't, the gender doesn't, isn't the point here. This is how wisdom literature tends to personify it. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains, and the man, the one who pleases God, will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about warning us about the dangers of sexual sin and the damaging consequences. And when you say, well, what exactly is sexual sin? Any sexual activity outside the boundaries of heterosexual marriage between a man and a Woman, any, any, any activity, when I say biblical marriage, it is marriage between a man and a woman. That's what heterosexual marriage is. That's the only marriage God recognizes. It doesn't have to be a Christian marriage, but it has to be a marriage between a man and a woman. There's only two genders, God says, and the only marriage he recognizes is between a man and a woman. That's it. And any sexual activity outside those confines would be sexual sin. This would include sex before marriage premarital sex, or any kind of sexual activity, intimate activity prior to marriage. It would include homosexual behavior. It would include pornography of any form or adultery in any form. Now, why is all of this so dangerous? Why is he warning us here about escaping the clutches of sexual sin? And the reason is not because God is anti-sex. He's not. He created sex. But he created sexual intimacy to be used in boundaries. And those boundaries are heterosexual marriage. Inside those boundaries, it is to be a beautiful gift that is to be enjoyed and enjoyed frequently. Outside those boundaries, it is not to be used. And there are dangerous consequences. I don't have time to go into all those today. Trust God in his word. That's the whole point of trust his wisdom here. And while we can be forgiven again, we can be forgiven. But sometimes the consequences can last a lifetime. Sometimes the consequences physically, emotionally, relationally can go on for years and even decades, even if we've been forgiven. I preached a sermon one time years ago called, Oh, the Consequences of Forgiven Sin. The Consequences of Forgiven Sin. Final benefit is that wisdom brings joy. Wisdom brings joy. 
So wisdom is a shelter, verse 12. Wisdom helps us accept and rest in God's providence. Wisdom produces strength. Wisdom teaches us about the danger of sexual sin. And finally, in chapter 8, verse 1, wisdom brings joy. And who, is, who doesn't want this? Who is like the wise who knows the explanation of things? Person wisdom. I love the wording here. A person's wisdom, what does it, what does it do to them? What's the text say? It brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Isn't it interesting how often you can look at someone after years of living a certain way and you can almost tell the way they've chosen to live. There's either a softness to them and a humility or there's a hardness to their face because of choices they've made. Ever notice how people who are godly have a, there's a confidence, there's a joy, there's a purpose, there's a peace in them. There's light in their eyes because of a series of decisions they've chosen to make. One of my favorite examples of this, I mean, there's abundant, there's a lot of examples sitting right out here in front of me this morning. One of my favorite examples of this was a single missionary named Mary Slesser. I was reading her quote again this week of a situation she was in, and it just, again, reading this quote over the years has struck me because it is so opposite of the way we think. She was a missionary from Scotland in the late 1800s. She went to uh, southern Nigeria as a missionary for 40 years. She served in the midst of grinding poverty, warring hostile tribes, and tropical diseases. And after one particularly exhausting day, she found herself trying to sleep in in her very crude hut that she lived in. And she wrote this in her diary the next day. I am not particular about my bed these days, but as I lay on a few dirty sticks last night, laid across and covered with a litter of dirty corn shells, so that was her bed, some sticks with corn shells, with plenty of rats and insects, and three women and an infant three days old, all of us together in the hut. You don't wonder that I slept little last night. And listen to this, but I had such a comfortable, quiet night in my own heart. But I had such a comfortable, quiet night in my own heart. That is God. That is God. And wisdom produces that. And it produces joy when we follow God's wisdom. Good news is this morning, it's never too late. Even if you've been foolish, even if you've made very sinful choices, even if you're suffering from consequences of forgiven sin that may linger on till the day you die, the good news is you can go to the Lord and many times you can redeem some of the lost things that the locusts have eaten And you can find a joy that can be restored even if you do have to linger on and suffer from some of the consequences of your choices. What's our summons this morning as we close? And it is this. Where are you looking for wisdom? You've got a whole bunch of choices facing you this next week. All of us in here are going to make all kinds of decisions this next week. We're going to make decisions today. Where are you going to look for wisdom? Are you going to look to God? 
or are you going to look to yourself? You're going to look to somebody else. You're going to look to your friends. You're going to look. To, where are you going to turn this week for all these different decisions you have to make for wisdom? The Bible says, "Look to Jesus. Look to God." Number one, for the most important decision, which is being saved from judgment and making sure that you're right with God and you've trusted the Lord as Savior and your eternity is secure. But beyond that, wisdom for daily living. I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I invite you to turn there because, again, I want to show you the, the connections, these intertextual connections between the Old and New Testament where Jesus is pictured as the personification of wisdom. That's where we see the strongest connections between wisdom literature and the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. Jesus is the wisdom of God in bodily form. And no one understood this like Jesus himself, but especially the Apostle Paul, because he makes a number of references to it. In 1 Corinthians, a letter written to a young church in a very pagan area, but an area that exalted in human wisdom, ancient Greece. The Apostle Paul says this. Now think of these words in light of Ecclesiastes. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. And the Greeks, they're looking for wisdom, meaning human wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There it is. But Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament wisdom points right to Jesus as wisdom incarnate, and to Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who will you be looking to this week with all of the choices coming your way? Know that your decision on that matter will have consequences that last a day, a week, a month, perhaps the rest of your life. Let us seek God in His wisdom and not folly. For they lead in two totally different directions. Lord, we are thankful for wisdom literature and for this book that exalts in your wisdom. As we get ready to sing and respond, Father, teach us how to respond to godly wisdom. And I especially pray for those here today who truly are born again and have been making foolish decisions that you would help them to humble themselves, seek you, and that you might rebuild some of what the locusts have taken away. For those who don't yet know Christ, Lord, summon them, open their eyes to the wisdom that is in Christ and the salvation that is offered. And we pray this in his name. Amen.